Well, good morning to each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is such a joy to be here at long last. And before we begin, let me just offer a word of thanks to all of you for the many ways in which you have welcomed Sunel and I to Jacksonville. Uh, the scripture says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And we are grateful to have experienced Christ's love through so many um, letters and emails and phone calls and meals and all sorts of things. We are so grateful uh, to be in your midst. I also want to joyfully welcome Tatum Thompson this morning. Tatum, if you'll stand over here. Tatum is our new youth director who will begin on Monday. Uh, we welcome you, Tatum, and warmly anticipate all that God will do through your ministry here with us. I want to also thank her search committee, um, all of whom are very excited that Tatum has agreed to join our ministry here at RPC. So we'll look forward to getting to know you, Tatum, as well in the days to come. This morning, I'd like to begin a sermon series on the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, and we'll continue with this series for the next several weeks. I think it sort of makes sense to begin at the beginning when you start in a new place. I also love these chapters of scripture because they are just brimming with theological insights into who God is and also insight into who we are as human beings. And so I hope you will enjoy this sermon series. As we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us bow for a word of prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church gathered here this morning. And in our hearing, O Lord, give us the courage to obey. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Word made flesh. Amen. The first lesson this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for God's Word to you. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry... We do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Genesis 1, 1 verses 1 through 25. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, 
while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters of every kind and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps along the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Jane and John came to my office a number of years ago to discuss the ways in which God was involved in their lives and with the earth in general. They had discovered that their beliefs about the matter were quite different. Jane believed that God was someone akin to Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice, always evaluating whether she had been naughty or nice. Jane always tried to do the right thing, believing that if she were good, God would reward her. The problem was that she had hit a rough patch in her life. Things weren't going well, and so she assumed that God was getting back at her for doing something wrong. She wasn't sure what exactly she had done, but what better explanation for the problems of the world, she thought, than that people get what they deserve. Jane's worldview made the world predictable, after all, and we like a world that's predictable, right? There was no room in Jane's worldview for order or predictability. People reap what they sow, and everyone gets their just desserts. Now, meanwhile, Jane's boyfriend, John, had grown weary of the anxiety that plagued Jane's faith and life. John didn't believe that God acted so vindictively after all. In fact, for John, God was someone akin to a divine clockmaker who made the world and set it in motion long ago, but established it to operate entirely on its own by natural laws. John didn't think that God treated anyone differently than anyone else because God didn't really treat anyone any way at all. God simply sits back in the heavenly easy chair, watches the world go by, and mutters, What will be, will be. How pretentious, John thought, to think that God would lift a finger to help one particular person, because if God would help one person, why not also everyone else? Humans bear full responsibility for the mess we've made of the world, and it's no use blaming God for the problems we've made or asking God to save us from them. John's worldview made the world completely unpredictable. Randomness and chance always carried the day. It's easy to see, isn't it, why Jane's challenging circumstances had brought her into conflict with John. They had always known that the other person believed in God and they had considered their faith to be something they had in common, but never had their beliefs created such conflict between them. They simply didn't agree about the ways in which God relates to the chaos of this world. For people like Jane, God is like a helicopter parent, way too involved in every detail. But for people like John, God is like an absentee parent, far away and completely uninvolved. Despite the wide divergence between them, Jane and John are not alone in their views. In fact, Jane's views align more closely with some other religions' ideas about karma or laws of cause and effect more than with the Christian God of grace. And John's views align more closely with the views of the deists than the Christian God of presence. 
Theists believe in a supreme being who does not get involved in the universe. So is there any way to resolve this tension between the beliefs that Jane and John hold? Can they find common ground? And if so, where? Well, the creation account that opens the book of Genesis offers a much more compelling theology of creation. The Bible begins with God's Spirit hovering over a dark, watery chaos as though quivering with creative anticipation. Suddenly, God speaks and light cuts through the darkness. God speaks and the sky separates from the sea. God speaks and dry ground emerges from within the sea. And creation is underway. Clearly, God is attentive, involved, and authoritative over the world. But as God continues to create, the raw materials over which God's Spirit first hovered take on shape and purpose, and themselves participate in God's creative will. God says, let the earth put forth vegetation, and plants appear. God says, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and schools of fish appear. And God appoints the sun and the stars to govern the days, and they have been rising and shining ever since. You see, before God began to create, nothing had any purpose. Chaos ruled the roost. There were no cyclical seasons, no days or nights, no time. There were no inhabitable realms of earth, sky, and sea, no space. And of course, there were no creatures to be fruitful and multiply. But as God creates, God co-ops the chaos itself to produce the very creation God calls good. In other words, God does not create by vanquishing the chaos, but by infusing it with order and with purpose. So although God is clearly attentive and involved with creation, God also instills it with agency and empowers it to cooperate with God in bringing forth whatever new creation God wills next. So Jane is right that God is intimately involved with the world, and John is right that the world is not merely subject to the manipulations of a divine puppeteer, but possesses its own integrity and intrinsic value. As God creates, God equips the creation to fulfill the purpose God intends for it. God's relationship with the creation then should not be described as controlling on the one hand, nor as withdrawn on the other, but as interactive and cooperative. You see, there's a subtle but pervasive truth found throughout the Genesis creation narrative. And here it is. Chaos is pregnant with creative potential. Chaos is the perfect raw material for creativity. It is precisely in the midst of confusion and disorder that something new is poised to emerge as God's word goes forth. Constrained chaos can be constructive. 
Many examples of this principle can be observed in the natural world. Think, for example, of the weather. The formation of storms is so complex and unpredictable that it defies mathematical calculation, especially here in Florida, it seems. And yet the earth is nourished and sustained by rainfall and sunshine. Chaos gives forth to order. The flow of fluids, such as water, is similarly impossible to predict. No two waves crashing on the sand of the seashore, for example, are ever the same. And yet water can be channeled to flow within the banks of a river or a canal to irrigate crops or produce hydroelectric power. Chaos gives forth to order. Theologian Bill Brown observes that this principle holds true even at a subatomic level. In 1889, a French physicist demonstrated that the gravitational interactions between three or more objects cannot be predicted, even in a controlled environment. And so chaos theory was born. In his book on physics, Gary Zukov states that particle physics is a picture of chaos beneath order. Chaos gives forth to order. But it's not only the natural world that exhibits this principle. We humans as well have been endowed with the capacity to derive order and purpose from chaos and disorientation. To make lemonade from lemons, if you will, or perhaps more profoundly, to exhibit spiritual growth. Because God's creative word remains a powerful and compelling force in the world, seasons of difficulty and challenge in our lives give way to deeper purpose and persistence. Consider, for example, how many artists manage to produce profound work even in the midst of deep uncertainty and anguish. Michelangelo's letters indicate that he was deeply depressed and exhausted while painting the Sistine Chapel. Vincent van Gogh painted many of his self-portraits from a psychiatric clinic. Despite the obstacles they faced, their creative masterpieces stir our hearts to this very day. Chaos gives forth to beauty. Recall a time in your life when you've undergone a major transition. Maybe it was an exciting change, like moving to a new city for a new job, or welcoming your first child into the world, or starting classes at a new school. Maybe it was a painful, unsolicited transition, like a death, or a divorce, or a period of unemployment. As you recall those steps along your journey of life, I would venture to guess that establishing a new routine was one of the ways in which you were able to find a new sense of control and purpose in your life during those difficult times. Establishing certain predictable habits helps us shape the chaos we face into some kind of tangible order. Because we are, at our core, right, creatures of habit, because we reflect the fingerprints and character of God, our Creator. When Sunel and I arrived in Jacksonville a couple weeks ago, 
The movers moved our things into the home we're renting in Riverside and stacked them in no particular order. The boxes and bins formed a sort of formless void in our house that made us feel quite disoriented because we didn't know exactly where any particular thing was. The only solution, of course, was to begin unpacking, to begin stacking pots and pans from largest to smallest in the kitchen cabinets, to hang our clothes in the closet, dress shirts on one side, athletic shirts on the other side, to hang our paintings and photos on the walls to remind us who we are and where we're from. And after a few days of this, voila, the house felt like home. Order was brought forth from chaos, and boy, did it feel satisfying. Perhaps that was a hint of what God felt after a day's work of creating, as God looked out over creation and saw that it was good. In the end, it seems undeniable that human life balances delicately between the states of stability and change the states of order and chaos. No sooner have we established some kind of normalcy than we find ourselves adapting to some kind of change. But suppose it was meant to be this way, insofar as we share the character of creation as creatures placed upon the dry ground. Maybe we're meant to see moments of chaos in our lives as opportunities for God's creative spirit to enlist us in creating something new, in establishing deeper purpose, or in heading in a new direction. The world today, after all, seems especially full of chaos and confusion, doesn't it? Political, economic, and social upheaval abounds. But perhaps God's Spirit is hovering over our chaos as well, poised to shape it into something new. Perhaps even the mess we're in is brimming with possibility. The first chapter of our scriptures makes me wonder, can the chaos of working from home give forth to a more efficient and balanced workload for the workforce? Can the chaos of remote learning give forth to more creative and resourceful forms of education? Can the chaos of social unrest give forth to a more just and equitable world? Can the chaos of undesired solitude give forth to deeper reflection and intimacy with God? I suppose only time will tell. But given what we know about God, the Creator, a God who both engages and governs creation, as Jane knows, but a God who also endows creation with agency and creative potential, as John knows, given what we know about God, I think we have plenty of reason for hope. For the God who first called forth light from darkness continues to give us hope in Jesus Christ our Lord, the light who shines in the darkness as a light that can never be extinguished. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.